Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff text me 949-415-6256 please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book the comprehensive guide to clinical research it's been selling really well getting very well received by the community thank you guys so much for that also check out the youtube member page join this channel to get perks that's my youtube uh, membership it's 10 bucks a month you get a monthly mastermind exclusively it's a zoom call every month with other youtube members uh, you also get weekly videos exclusive to the youtube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences so check that out really means a lot to me and thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show Guru Nation, thank you so much for watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, share. I have Dr. Jocelyn Pearl. I met her, of all places, on Twitter. I keep telling you guys, Twitter is like the place I post the least, but it's the place I listen and literally listen now with Twitter spaces the most. Like, I don't go on Facebook newsfeed and look. I don't do that. I don't do Instagram. I don't do LinkedIn. But on Twitter, I do. And I could go down rabbit holes in there. And actually, Dr. Pearl and I met in a Twitter space where she was a speaker. I think it was about NFTs or something. Um, and I noticed on your on your website, you discuss open access DAO. So you have a decentralized autonomous organization. We'll get into a little bit of that. But basically, uh, Dr. Pearl... She's a scientist, podcaster, and company builder. Her passion's working on devastating illnesses for which there are no cures. She's a huge fan of Jennifer Doudna. So am I. And um, she started Lady Scientist Podcast. So everybody go follow. I'll put your LinkedIn. Which one do you want me to put? The YouTube channel or the LinkedIn? Uh, sure, LinkedIn? yeah. YouTube's great. YouTube. <clears throat> everybody go check out Lady Scientist Podcast. Um, it's pretty cool. We got to have, actually, I got a guest for you, Dr. Pearl, Ooh, the nice. lady who wrote this book, Dr. Hazen. I could introduce you after she's good. She's a good guest. Um, awesome. amazing lady scientist, <laughs> amazing lady scientist. So, uh, with that being said, you know, you got a PhD in molecular cellular biology and we can talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And we're going to have to do part two, three, and four, but let's just start with this. My audience is our clinical researchers, people who work in the industry, people who have businesses in the industry. What do you see? What are you excited about for the next decade 
as far as technology is concerned in biotech. So like, is it gene therapy? Is it, are you excited about this mRNA platforms? What are you excited about? Yeah, there's, I mean, honestly, from the biotech perspective, there's so much to be excited about and looking forward to. I think there are some bottlenecks in the industry with regards to manufacturing for gene and cell therapies, but that aside, you know, there's just a rapid amount of innovation that's happening. And um, within the cell therapy field, for instance, CAR T cells, um, NK cells, all, you know, all these new cell therapies that are coming online. Um, I think it's just amazing to see these uh, products that are being developed and hopefully starting to break down the barrier of uh, solid tumor cancers, which has been uh, one of the challenges for, for cell therapy. So I'm excited about that field. Um, on the gene therapy side, I think it's been a little bit slow going, but we've seen several key um, approvals, you know, over the last couple of years. And all of that really helps, you know, motivate the industry. And hopefully we'll be seeing more approvals and, um, you know, just more examples of, of that working for patients. Um, my background is in more of the gene editing and epigenome engineering. Um, so basically, you know, traditional gene therapy, you're delivering uh, maybe a, a, a better gene. Um, maybe the patient has a mutated gene. And so you're delivering a, a, a better copy of that gene and that's getting expressed. Um, and the types of therapies I work on, we're often trying to manipulate gene expression um, to fix that disease. And I think there's a lot of promise in this field um, that again has been a little bit slow going. A lot of companies have been focused more on the gene editing side. So you're delivering a nuclease that's um, inducing a, a, a break to the genome. Um, there are some issues that come with that type of therapy. Um, whereas in the epigenome engineering, we're delivering an effector molecule that's going to have an impact on gene expression. So we think it's a little bit safer. It has more potential for multiplex strategies. Um, and I think there's a lot of promise. So um, hopefully we can get there and really start delivering uh, these types of reagents to patients. Do you think that's the next wave? Like after CRISPR is going to be epigen... Ep How did you call it? Epigenomics? Epigenome engineering, engineering or epigenome editing. Um, is that yeah. like, a, so that's not actually changing. Like in CRISPR, they're changing or replacing one of the nucleotides. This is this totally different. Exactly. So, you know, across the field of gene editing, we've relied on different types of DNA binding modalities. Um, the first was really zinc fingers. Um, pioneered by a number of academic researchers and then Sangamo Therapeutics. Um, then TALs uh, were discovered. Um, and those, of course, have a one-to-one -one base pair uh, affinity. And then um, CRISPR, of course, was discovered around 2012. Um, and that allowed for uh, much more rapid um, library screens and testing across the genome because the guides themselves are easier to synthesize than uh, a bunch of zinc fingers or towels, for instance. Um, and so really it was kind of like a coverage perspective of 
being able to rapidly identify um, reagents that work to uh, target a specific part of the genome um, and uh, potentially repair a gene. And of course, there's been many other um, developments in that space, like uh, base editing from Beam, for instance, um, I think is quite an exciting approach. So yeah, yeah I, th I think there's many areas that it's moving into. Um, and we're starting to see more clinical precedents like Intellia's data um, in the liver uh, was really exciting. Um, but I personally am pretty excited about the epi editing side of things um, because oftentimes in certain diseases, um, the expression of the genes is what's causing the disease. So um, being able to target that gene and upregulate it or downregulate it uh, has the potential to actually cure that illness. I see. So you're bullish. You're definitely bullish on this sector of, of research. Yeah. Next decade, clinical researchers are going to be busy, right? There's no way. <laughs> There's We have a shortage. So people watching, I just want to assure you guys, like, I think this this decade of research is going to be booming for you guys. So you're in the right industry. If you're in clinical research, if you're not, get try to get in. Right now it's hot. Get in while the getting's good. We got to talk about decentralized science at Web3, but we might leave that for next time because we're going to do a part part two just on that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to, right now, the hot topic is COVID, right? And I don't want to just hear from random Joe Sixpack on Twitter what they think about the vaccine. I want to hear from from doctors, PhDs, physicians, people treating patients, people writing papers. What do you think about the vaccine? Is mRNA, first of all, is the mRNA vaccine, uh, is that gene therapy? Um, if we think about gene therapy as delivering something that's going to express a gene, then yes. Um, and I've worked on mRNA reagents um, for many years and personally just from a scientific perspective and translational research perspective, it's always been an exciting area. Like we've known within the field that um, when you compare plasmid or DNA delivery to RNA or mRNA delivery, mRNA, you get this very potent level of expression um, that's very, very fast and effective. Like you can picture getting, you know, if we're delivering GFP, the, the, the gene that fluoresces green. Um, with mRNA delivery, you'd often see in your cells, they're all 100% green and the expression is very uh, consistent across all the cells. Whereas when we deliver DNA, we often see much more variability. You might have lower uh, efficiency. So you might only have, say, 50% of the cells are receiving that. Um, and, you know, there, there are pros and cons to comparing that to, to viral delivery as well. Um, but we've always kind of, I think, as scientists, appreciated that mRNA delivery can work really well but it's also very transient. And so the question in the field, I think, has always been, will it be potent enough as a vaccine to actually induce long-term um, immune effects, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's what we're seeing play out a little bit. And, and, you know, we could get into my thoughts on, you know, why this made sense for this pandemic. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with being able to scale the production of that mRNA product very quickly mm-hmm. compared to like a traditional vaccine um, and getting back to that manufacturing bottleneck that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, I think they made that choice early on for, for a number of reasons. Um, but what we're seeing happen is that weak response over time and really not seeing a sustained um you know, immune response uh, to the vaccines, which is why um, the boosters have come into play. Yeah. And the problem with boosters, and I kind of understand a lot of people's hesitations with the vaccine. I mean, this is the first time it's being used, right? In, 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 in the actual real world setting, we've never had mRNA vaccines being used. And we're basically doing a global clinical trial, everybody who's in it. And that gets into mandates and all that stuff. And we're trying, I was going to have Dr. Peter McCullough on to explain his concerns, but I, I think the truth somewhere in between, like you said, the efficacy is very strong in the beginning. And then within 30 days or so kind of wears off. And that's why you need the boosters, but people's concerns are, cause there's two issues. There's efficacy and there's safety. So people are concerned with the safety data and I know you like to comment on, you know, popular podcasts and whatnot. So what do you have to say to the people or I guess, have you read any papers that would suggest that, you know, the spike protein, when you get the mRNA vaccine, the spike protein is unregulated for how long it produces spike protein and, um, how much of it and where it goes. These are people's main concerns from what I gather. I'm not a scientist, but am I on onto something here? Yeah, I think it's, again, it's a really delicate and nuanced topic. And there's hundreds of pages of materials that one can read on you know, the work that Pfizer and Moderna did on the clinical side and, you know, some of the work that's happened globally um, to evaluate these reagents. Um, For me personally, I think what has been challenging is there have been a number of like high profile podcasts where certain information was portrayed, I think, in a, in a, stronger way or in a misleading way. Um, For instance, about the localization of the mRNA product, um, there was some data, uh, some animal data that was shown like in a podcast about it localizing to reproductive organs. And it just, I don't think was presented in a fair way. Um, And I, I personally, dislike when data is presented in a misleading way that's actually going to cause more fear and unnecessary fear. Um, That being said, I I do think it's important for us, you know, as a collective to be able to ascertain the safety and some of the issues with these types of vaccines, these types of therapies, 
And, um, you know, that like scientific literacy part of it, I think is really hard to communicate. Yeah. Like even, you know, f for myself as a scientist, like I can spend hours and hours reading on this and trying to have conversations and communicate um, with people about it, but it's this very like gray space. Um, and there are a few really strong voices kind of in that like mixed media podcast space um, that I think it makes it hard for people to know what to believe. Of course. I've said it from the beginning of this pandemic. If you're not a virologist, like I'm not really interested in your opinion. Now I take it we can open it more because there's been papers written on it. Like you got to be somebody who knows, you know, just like you, Dr. Pearl, somebody who studies this stuff, who publishes papers. I mean, those are the people I take their opinion seriously. So like, I guess as we wrap up, because I know you got to go and we'll do a part two. What are your biggest, like, what are, I guess, some of the best selling points of the vaccine and then some of the things to be more most skeptical about yeah i mean i think one thing that's been really encouraging is that it has had a major impact on severe illness and and death um specifically for the older age ranges and i personally think it's admirable how different governments were able to roll out the vaccine. I know there are a lot of criticisms of it, but um, specifically for the aging population, people being able to access it as quickly as they could, um, I think did save a lot of lives. Um, I do have concerns around the amount of capture that the pharmaceutical industry has on our media, advertising, and, you know, the kind of lockstep with the government that people have been talking about. And I don't, I generally am bothered by too much power. Um, and I think it, that's, that's leading to some, some major kind of ethical issues around this topic. Um, and it, again, really delicate topic. And I personally, I'm vaccinated and I've also had COVID and, um, you know, it, it's, it's such a complicated issue, but it has saved lives in my, in my view of the data. <laughs> yeah. You seem to have a very centrist view. I think most people, if you break it down to them that way, they would agree with you. I, I feel the same. I think the problem is everything's polarized. So you have to pick a side and mm -hmm. look guys, like we work in research, big pharma at the end of the day, they're not necessarily here for your good. Like, yeah, they'll make, you know, they'll make medications, but they're profit driven first as most of these companies are. But when, when you get into mandates and lobbying and things like that, there's no bigger set of lobbyists than, big pharma. So I think that's where a lot of the skepticism comes from. I think a little bit of skepticism is healthy, but I think getting into conspiracies is not, and the truth's somewhere in between. Um, mm -hmm. What One last thing, uh, transmissibility. So if I'm not vaccinated and somebody else is, not va is vaccinated, who can spread from what you've read? I believe 
from what I understand, both of us can spread COVID just as easily as like whether we're vaccinated or not. Is that scientifically proven to be untrue? Scientifically proven to be untrue. I think. (laughs) Because the whole narrative is like, hey. Yeah. Okay, you're not vaccinating for yourself. You're vaccinating for others. But then Mm. people who are vaccinated can also get people sick who are vaccinated. So I think that, well, there are there's variability in that um, across the variants, I think. Um, I think potentially the earlier variants, that was true. Um, but as we get new variants that are more and more divergent from the spike protein and what was used for the original mRNA mm-hmm. vaccine reagents, um, I think it's less true. And there, there is some data looking at the threshold of the qPCRs for vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Again, I don't know how much that translates to the actual, like, transmissibility um and i would i would say it's either indeterminate or not true um based on you know kind of the collective evidence that i've observed um because i think once you have that viral load and especially if you're symptomatic it's very easy to pass it along to others um and we're seeing that all over the place now with omicron and uh, triple vaccinated people, trans, you know, transmitting it um, right. left and right. So it's a tough thing to study, especially when there's new variants. So like every month or every two months, it's changes. The narrative's not going to stay the same. You know, like CDC, FDA, they did a horrible job of communication, and that caused a lot of distrust. And pharma had a great opportunity to improve their image, and in the beginning of the pandemic, they were. But now, as somebody who works in clinical research and has to convince patients to join studies for us, non-COVID studies, just regular studies, psoriasis, dermatitis studies, it's, it's harder. My job's harder now because mm-hmm. of the lack of communication, lack of transparency, yeah. and then hanging on to outdated narratives just because they don't want to change them. Yeah, they're, they're not doing themselves favors with the way they're carrying on. And I think it's not just this pandemic, you know, there has been a history of this profit driven approach. And unfortunately, so for many people in the United States, and I do think it is kind of a problem specific to the United States in a way. I mean, obviously, this expands to other countries, but I think the regulations are so different. Um, And again, that relationship between the government and these companies and the regulatory, um, you know, uh, departments that are involved. And I think it, it is concerning. And if they continue to act this way, it's not going to be good for them in the long run. Yeah. See, guys, you got to listen to scientists. And not only that, consider the source, like, I, I find the best information usually comes from independent scientists, clinicians, not hospital-based clinicians, which is a whole nother podcast. The health, I think the healthcare system is being destroyed by these big hospital systems coming through and negotiating prices. And it's not about 
necessarily treatment. It's just about managing symptoms. It's not about getting you healthy. It's about managing your symptoms. So I feel like this was the easy solution for them to say, well, we need to just fax more. But I think if you, and I think you agree, if you break it down and really look at, at the data critically, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. We need early treatments. We need treatment. I mean, we're just ignoring early treatments. This lady, Dr. Hazen, who I want you to interview, yeah. um, she that's what she's all about. I'm actually in her study um, for uh, analyzing the microbiome for somebody who had has had COVID. So I know you got to go. Everybody go subscribe, Lady Scientist Podcast. The next episode, we'll talk a little bit about COVID because I don't think it's going away. <laughs> but we're going to talk about decentralized science and Web3 and how that's going to possibly alleviate a lot of the issues with traditional academic systems. And my biggest uh, pet peeve is the major hospital systems that run healthcare in this country. And they're in cahoots with big pharma too. So that's all another topic. We're going to get into DAOs and all that stuff. So subscribe, go follow Dr. Pearl's podcast, Lady Scientist podcast. And thank you very much, Dr. Pearl, for coming on. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for having me and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for watching, listening. Catch you all later. Bye-bye.